This is Anthony Tolliver of the Phoenix Suns. You're listening to the BS of the Suns podcast, where they are always fueling the fire. Welcome, welcome. Episode 69 of the BS of the Suns podcast here on Bright Side of the Sun. This is Chris Habis, kind of flying solo. We're going to speak to... Uh, a pantheon of great writers out here at SB Nation covering uh, the Pacific Division. So we're going to talk to folks covering the Sacramento Kings, covering the Golden State Warriors, as well as the Los Angeles Lakers, the Clippers. I'll, I'll throw the link in there. We already did. I tried to do it as quick little 20-minute podcasts and then throw them all together and mush them all together into one. Ended up being a, a long hour-long conversation talking Clippers. Um, Dave King has already poked me and made fun of me for that. But so we're going to have the three other teams in the Pacific Division with Greg Wissinger or Wissinger of the Sacramento Kings, Nate Parham of the Golden State Warriors, as well as Drew Garrison of the Los Angeles Lakers coming on to talk about those three teams, preview the Pacific Division, the, the offseason moves, kind of behind enemy lines and how they match up with the Phoenix Suns little bit of overall how we think that things are going to look with the team so we're going to kick things off with the sacramento kings and greg wissinger of the sac town royalty blog over here with sbnation.com thanks for listening guys we'll be back next week with another podcast in general but thanks for listening and let's go ahead and dive into the pacific division and now continuing along with the uh, Pacific Division preview here with the Bright Side of the Sun, the BS of the Suns podcast, went a little long-winded with the uh, Los Angeles Clippers. They uh, they sort of had their own podcast that ran about an hour long. We're going to try and keep this a little more concise, and we're going to start things off with the Sacramento Kings. we got Greg Wissinger of Sacktown Royalty, um, one of the preeminent writers over there with them. you got you and Ziller and the rest of those guys over there. You guys got a nice staff going on over at Sacktown Royalty, and I guess let's just kick things off with basketball starts this week. How are you feeling, Greg? I'm excited. And the season's upon us, and I've spent the last several weeks trying to talk myself into all the off-season moves, and I think I'm ready. Yeah, I, lo- I love, by the way, I, I just, in my mind, you, you are Vlade Divac. I just, I can't, I can't <laughs> not, like, if I ever meet you in person, I, I'm just going to be so disappointed that you're not Vlade Divac, but um, your your Twitter profile, like you said the other day, you just, you happen to throw it out there that you've, the offseason officially hit its, like, pinnacle because you've talked yourself into every single move that the Kings have made this offseason. Let, let's start off there. So the big move, and in accordance with the Suns, is at point guard, you basically did a swap in free agency. You let Isaiah Thomas go for reasons that behind-the-scenes rumors, uh, we've heard all of those. You bring in Darren Collison, Ramon Sessions. That's your new point guard rotation. First question, what can you tell us about Isaiah Thomas beyond his general stat line and what we've seen in the preseason? And then uh, what are your thoughts on your new collective point guard unit there? Well, the important thing to know is that Isaiah Thomas is a treasure, and if you hurt him, the Sacramento Kings fans will come and hunt you down. It was uh, one of those situations where he was given away to a good home, but we need to make sure he's well taken care of, and uh, we we love him in Sacramento, and you guys can't be mean to him at all. He needs to get plenty of playing time, he needs to get plenty of shots, you know, just... Let, let him have some fun out there in the desert. Yeah, we, we um, keep the back door open as much as we can. We keep his water dish full <laughs> so far. Yeah. No, I mean, Isaiah Thomas is a fan favorite for both on and off the court stuff. I mean, he's, by all accounts, a great guy. I never heard anything bad about him from a locker room perspective or anything like that. Um, he showed up to city council meetings when we were fighting to keep the Kings in Sacramento. And this is when they were threatening to move to Seattle, which is his hometown. Like, that's the kind of guy he is. Like, he 
he embraces the community that he's in. I think your your readers are going to love him. Um, I mean, just in general about him. I mean, I think his defense is is an area of opportunity, but I don't know if it's necessarily as bad as people tend to talk about. I mean, there's times when he plays good defense, times when he doesn't. I mean, that's true for a lot of point guards in the league. I mean, the comparison I like to use a lot was Tony Parker because they actually had somewhat similar stat lines, and Tony Parker's by no means a good defender, so it really depends on the system and everything. But And then, you know, you get him on offense, and he's he's fantastic. I mean, he isn't afraid of the big shot. He'll take the big shot. I mean, he's really fun to watch, the way he gets to the rim, the way he creates shots, and I, I think you guys are going to love him. Um, to the second part of your question, as far as the, the point guard rotation, as much as I wasn't happy that they let let uh, can't talk here, let Isaiah Thomas go, I have like I said, I talked myself into the offseason. I think that Ramon Sessions and Darren Collison can bring something different to the team. I think that the Kings can maybe be okay with that. You know, last season we referred to Demarcus Cousins, Rudy Gay, and Isaiah Thomas as our not our big three, but our only three because they were the only three players who would be productive on the court at all. This year, I think that the Kings will have a little bit more depth to where it won't be a complete disaster when the bench unit comes on. And I think that what the Kings are looking for out of Collison is different than what you would look for out of Isaiah Thomas. They're looking for him to initiate the offense and basically get out of the way of the guys that they want the offense running through. So more of a facilitator role as opposed to the scoring and kind of leading through shooting and, and scoring. So I'm hoping that they know what they're doing and that we're going to have some addition by subtraction, but it's definitely hard to, to lose a guy that's as likable as Isaiah. Yeah, and, and I mean, the likability is something that when you mentioned that so far through, what was I able to go to, two preseason games so far, he is a, probably about as charismatic as anyone in that entire locker room, and he's he might be the voice of the Suns in regards to the players. You know, P.J. Tucker kind of has that mantle, but outside of Phoenix, who is P.J. Tucker? No disrespect to him, but he's not really a big known entity out there, and Isaiah is. I mean, he's a guy that everybody kind of has learned to know about throughout the league through his story, and it'll be interesting. I mean, I've always been a Ramon Sessions guy, so I'm, I'm, I, was, I was a big proponent of that pickup i like ramon sessions but you basically you're you're replacing isaiah thomas and i guess to an extent gravis vasquez who was traded during the uh, middle of the season there with the backup point guard from the clippers last year and the backup point guard from the charlotte bobcats so it's it's probably a tough pill to swallow initially and also the biggest thing to me and you can talk to me a little bit about this from the king's perspective what is the internal thoughts from not only your community but the writers and everybody in general within Sacramento that these two point guards are brought on and it might stunt the growth of someone like Ray McCallum who looked like he might be at least a serviceable backup point guard last season for a team that's not necessarily hunting for the playoffs this year. Yeah, we're really interested to see how the minutes are going to shake out, but what's interesting and what I think you'll see a lot of is with Collison, McCallum, and Sessions, all three of those guys can slide over to the two spot in certain lineups. And I think you're going to see a lot of that. I think you're going to see a lot of them where two of those three players will be on the court at the same time. Just because, I mean, Ben McElmore's still very raw. He looked really rough at the start of last season. Had a few bright spots as the season went on and seemed to be getting better. He's going to be the opening day starter, but he's still not at the point where you want to rely on him for heavy minutes. He's very inconsistent. And even though the Kings 
think that they might have something good in Nick Stauskas, and you know we've been really excited what, by what we saw in preseason. He's still an unproven rookie as well, and so I think that you'll see McCallum, Sessions, and Collison all spend a little bit of time at the two earned spots throughout the year. And that's that's good news to hear because I said I'm a Roman Sessions guy. I'm pr- I was probably the the bandwagon driver, the torchbearer, the guy running with the Ray McCallum <laughs> bandwagon there during the draft when he was coming out. He's he's a guy that I'm just I really think is going to make in this league. He just granted Detroit mercy. I mean, no one's really going to you know talk about that from where he came from and the talent that he played against in college. But tremendous athlete for his position. And the point guard position is so deep in the NBA that there's so many good players that you have a guy like uh, you know Ray McCallum who ends up being the third string point guard on the Kings who might you know give or take be un- unfortunately a bottom five team in the Western Conference but they got a lot of talent there at the point guard and maybe these guys with Sessions and with Collison are just kind of there in waiting and McCallum can do some things to be able to move up the depth chart there I mean there's no rule that says you can't play better than what you're expected and end up moving up the depth chart. Um, so with the Sacramento Kings last season, if you were to like specifically pick out the biggest weakness of the team, you mentioned you didn't call your guys the big three, you called them the only three. So that might be answering the question there. What was the biggest weakness of the Kings last season? And do you feel they addressed that appropriately in the off season? The biggest weakness, I mean, a big part of it was the depth, you know, I mean, if, you know, in those games where maybe one of the players was injured, like Rudy Gay, DeMarcus Cousins, Isaiah Thomas, all of them had different injuries at different points. So if there came a point where there was just one of them on the floor from the starting unit, or both of them were off, or all three weren't on the floor, the team was a disaster. I mean, they would go minutes without scoring. It was terrible. So I think that they did a really nice job of adding pieces for depth purposes. You know, guys like Sessions, who I thought was a steal at the contract they got him on, they picked up Brian Hollins for cheap as a, a backup center, which, I mean, Brian Hollins isn't exactly a, a world beater or a guy who's going to win you a championship, but he does provide some sort of depth at the center position where he is at least willing to give a hard foul and isn't afraid of being dunked on and, you know, will try to play some defense. Uh, they picked up Omar Caspi, who had been with the Kings before and is now back with them, just for some wing depth. Again, he was really cheap and from what we've seen in the preseason, he's a much different player than last time he was in Sacramento. He really seems to understand how to be a role player and, and just play within himself. So I think that the depth will be better this year. The other big issue was really the defense, and unfortunately, we haven't seen a lot of focus on that. I mean, the, the guys that we brought in, you know, Collison, Sessions, I mean, none of them are known as defensive stoppers. We drafted Nick Stauskas, who is an offensive threat but isn't good at defense. Um, probably the two biggest defensive additions we had were adding Ryan Hollins, who, again, not a great player, not the best room protector, but he will make the block attempt and try to get in the paint, and he's not bad at that. And then Eric Moreland, who's an undrafted free agent that really shined in summer league and was a really good project room protector, but he's probably not ready to play serious rotation minutes yet. So the depth is better. The defense will probably still be the question mark going into the season. Yeah, when you're when you're a six ten athlete like Eric Moreland, rail thin, undrafted free agent, like you said, he's he's a guy that is a project. But when you're the Sacramento Kings, I mean, I mean, you're not the Philadelphia 76ers by no stretch of the imagination. But when you're the Kings and the West is the West right now, it is what it is. This is the opportunity that you have to you know take flight. That's that's kind of why maybe with the point guard position, why I was. I'm not saying that they should have just said, all right, Isaiah Thomas is leaving. Let's just anoint Ray McCallum the starting point guard position because that probably wasn't the right answer. But when you have the opportunity that they have 
with the way the West is set up right now, with the way that it's stacked, you can throw different guys, give chances on guys like Eric Moreland, give chances on guys like Nick Stauskas, Ray McCallum, throw out there and see what they can do. Question, so you mentioned the defense, and I'm glad you did that because you, you just segued it for me. A lot of teams in this conference right now, outside of, or this division, I should say, sorry, the, the Pacific Division specifically, outside of Doc Rivers, and I think Jeff Hornacek has kind of put his feet, his, on, his feet on the ground, and he's the guy out here in Phoenix for as long as he can keep the job. There's a lot of question marks about the coaches there. Do you feel Mike Malone, I love the the hiring initially, and we've we got to see what happens year after year. He's trying to implement his defense. He's a defensive-oriented coach. Do you feel you guys have the right guy there in Mike Malone? It's a tricky question to answer because I really like Mike Malone. I think he is a good coach, and I think that he has a long future in this league as a head coach. Whether or not he's the right guy for the Kings, that remains to be seen. And I think that he is doing good. I mean, if you look at the month-by-month splits last season, the Kings did get better at defense as they went along, and they didn't add any defensive players along the way. So, I mean, that really does speak to him, I think. But the the bigger issue I see is, you know, it kind of raised some eyebrows when Vivek hired his head coach before he hired his GM. Yeah. And now I think we're seeing why. You know, Malone wants to do defense and rebounding and all this, and the team consistently goes out and is adding guys who aren't necessarily defensive players. And, you know, the the best Kings teams we ever saw were when Rick Adelman and Jeff Petrie were on the same page getting the right type of players for the right system. I think your coach and your front office really have to be on the same page. And right now, I don't know if the Kings front office and Malone are on the same page. So that's where I think it may not be a great fit. And I'm worried that if the Kings do have a, a rough start, Malone might end up being the fall guy, which... I'd hate to see because I really don't know how much of it is his fault. I think he's a good coach, but I think that he could be a coach who's on the hot seat if the Kings don't start off well. Yeah, and he was brought in at the same time as Coach Hornacek. And here's the difference. Here's the funny thing about Malone being hired and Coach Hornacek being hired is that when Malone was hired, he was probably... I, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, and you can probably correct me on this, but I think he was either the hottest or at the very top of the list there of the hottest assistant coaches to get moved up and be promoted and get a head coaching gig. And Hornacek, I mean, as much as I questioned it at the time, he won me over in his first press conference. As soon as you just start talking to the guy about basketball, it's over. Like, he's just, he's a head coach. He's going to find success no matter where he's at. And we saw it with the first year with the Phoenix Suns. And you're right, maybe Mike Malone, I mean, we can both probably agree he's an upgrade over Keith Smart, because <laughs> I covered enough Suns games where Sacramento was in town, and I, f- I feel like he was an upgrade over Keith Smart. Oh, easily. <laughs> yeah, and it is, it's true what you said. At the time, I mean, in Indian circles, Hornacek was a guy who people kind of expected to become a coach, but he wasn't the hot name or anything like that that offseason. Part of the reason that Vivek swooped in and hired Malone before he hired his GM was because he knew he wanted to hire Malone as coach. He'd worked with him when they were both in Golden State. He had seen how he, he operated. Malone was the hot assistant on Mark Jackson, who had just had a, a surprisingly great season. And there were a lot of teams that were talking to Michael Malone and interested in having him be their head coach. So the Kings jumped in and got him. And I, I think he's a good coach. You listen to him talk. The guy is passionate. He knows basketball. He has a lot of energy. And, you know, Listening to a coach terrible team over the course of 82 games, you usually get a pretty good sense of whether or not that guy's going to make it as a coach through the ups and downs, and I think Michael Malone can do it. He he has the right attitude. 
even when things have been going bad for a long time. And I think you need that in this league. And I really like him. So I really like him. And I hope he can stick around because I, I think ultimately he'll be proven to be a good coach. Yeah, ultimately, I, I, I like that you said that there because I've been a fan of just having conversations with him about basketball because, I mean, I talk to Jeff Hornacek for, if I want, 41 games a season um, with going over to the game. So, like, when I get a chance to speak to the opposing team coaches, especially someone like Mike Malone, like I tried to last year, he's always a guy that I've, I just, you, you can see that he understands the game. He knows the game. And a lot of these young guys like Frank Vogel and Mike Sp- or, uh, Eric Spolstra, Hornacek, all these guys that maybe come from different backgrounds, from former players to video room to wherever they're coming from, they, they all know the game. And it's exciting to see these young coaches get a chance. Now, serious slash maybe not semi-serious question who is the Sacramento Kings general manager? Is it Vivek or is it Pete D'Alessandro at this point? Um, Pete D'Alessandro is the, the GM, um, but it is not entirely clear kind of how the power lies. I mean, it. I haven't heard anything specific, but I mean, we know that Vivek is very involved in decisions. We know that Chris Mullen is very involved in the front office. He's kind of uh, Vivek's right-hand man, so to speak. And then there's Pete. So there's a lot of guys that are in there. And, you know, it's one of the things that, you know, some of us have talked about. And it's like, well, who, who's calling shots here? We don't really know. You know, and it's it's not that we've seen infighting or leaks or sniping or anything like that. So it could just be many people involved in the conversation coming to decisions together. But I don't know. I Personally, I don't think it's necessarily Vivek meddling because he has said from day one that, the way he's been successful is he surrounds himself with smart people and relies on their their expertise. So if he's ultimately calling the shot, I think he's doing it with heavy input from everyone else. I don't think it's just him deciding, I like this player, let's go get him. You know, I don't think it's quite like a, a mix situation with Jimmy Dolan or anything like that, but um, it, it's definitely muddy waters. We can't really tell exactly what's going on there. Yeah, I mean, new owners are new owners, right? And it's yeah. ex- it's exciting when they go out there and they make Rudy Gay trades and, you know, whether whether you agree with the trade or not, but it's exciting when they go out there and they make those moves and they're like, hey, we're going to go do something to stimulate the fan base and go be exciting. And then on the flip side of it, though, and you see that video on Grantland where he's basically, I mean, you, you, can, you can mince words, but he's basically persuading everyone to say Nick Stauskas in that room. And if Mike Malone was in that room and he was talking to Delisandro and said, hey, look, I'm a defensive-oriented guy. We're losing Isaiah Thomas. This is the way we're building this team. I, I think Alfred Payton's our guy. We'll see whether or not either of those guys are really legitimate, good NBA players and what their careers look like. But if it's Mike Malone talking to his general manager to build a team that he's going to coach, as we saw in that terrible draft day movie, like that's how it should be then Alfred Payton realistically is that guy, but it ends up being Nick Stauskas, which kind of duplicates the Ben McLemore pick. And I'm I'm curious from a Kings perspective, we see good teams duplicate their picks because they have their system. They like what they do. The the Clippers did it the past couple of years. The Thunder do it every year. The, the Heat, when they were on top with the big three, they did that every year. What are your thoughts on duplicating from Ben McLemore to Nick Stauskas year one to year two there? Well, at first, say that, that Grantland video, that was actually a multi-part video, and if you go back and watch the first part before the draft itself, one of the conversations they show is Michael Malone talking to Pete Alessandro and talking about how he really likes Nick Stauskas because the Kings were one of the worst teams in the league in three-point shooting last year, and Stauskas would help them spread the floor. So it's not necessarily that they're totally off base or that you know Malone is an anti-Stauskas guy. 
But in terms of duplicating the pick, I liked it a lot because I think you take the best player based on your evaluations. I don't believe in drafting just for need because that's how you end up passing guys that really turn out to be good. Like, yeah, Ben McMorrow was drafted with high expectations. But if he never develops, he never becomes much more than what he is and just kind of becomes the next Derek Williams, who is sitting on the team's bench right now, why did you pass on another good shooter who could fill what you had originally hoped Macklemore would do just because you already had Macklemore? I mean, you're basically increasing your odds of solving the issue at that position, which is the King's weakest position right now. I mean, behind Macklemore, after the trade for Rudy Gay last year, the Kings had no depth at shooting guard. It was basically Ben Macklemore, and that was pretty much it. That was a bad place to be when Ben Macklemore struggling through a rookie season. So I really like the pick in terms of just take the guy you want. Don't worry about how it doubles up on position. Don't worry about how it's going to be perceived in media. You know, so I, I'm I was a fan of the move. I I don't I don't care that they doubled up on the position. I just care that they got the right pick because you know Alfred Payton, Alfred Payton could have potentially been a better pick there, and he was the other guy that the Kings were really rumored to be involved with. So it remains to be seen, but that's all I really care about. Yeah, and, and I don't necessarily disagree with duplication of picks because depth is really important. And we're seeing it out here in Phoenix where people are questioning, oh, the Suns have three starting quality point guards, and then you also have Gerald Green and guys like Archie Goodwin and TJ Warren and Tyler Ennis that you probably want to develop. But, hey, you know what? There's nothing wrong with having depth. When you have quality of depth from top to bottom, I mean, let's look at the San Antonio Spurs from last season. Every single player on that roster could have been arguably a starter or a top seven rotation player on any other team in the NBA just because they built quality of depth. And whether you you know like how San Antonio built or you like how Miami built because they won the championship before, it just it depends on your, your perspective of basketball. But having depth is always good. And having Stauskas, having McLemore, I think that's a good thing. It's just, yeah, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. We'll look back in four to five years. That's when you can judge a draft pick and see whether or not Alfred Payton is this you know world-beating star point guard in a league of star point guards, or if Nick Stauskas is at least a serviceable starting or sixth man at the shooting guard position, which if that's what he is, then the Kings won that pick. They did a great job. They addressed three-point shooting. I think point guard, three-point shooting, and defense in general were the three things they had to address overall. Um, so let's 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 end this on two quick things here because um, I want to make sure that we hit on these. When you look at the Sacramento Kings and you look at the Phoenix Suns, they're division rivals um, from that perspective. They're going to play a lot of games. They're going to play a lot of heated games. How do you see this matchup this season going between Sacramento and Phoenix? Oh, it's going to be a bloodbath. Uh, I expect Isaiah Thomas to average about 37 points per game in those matchups. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't expect that to go particularly well for us this season. <laughs> in in 20 minutes, right? Going out there and just dropping 37 <laughs> right. points, and it'll be those will be his most efficient games of the year, and that that'll what that's what's going to win him the Sixth Man of the Year award. I, do you do you put any stock in the Demarcus Cousins? I don't want to play with Isaiah Thomas rumors, or is that something that you've heard about internal rumblings at all? No, I, I don't think there's really much there. I mean, I think if anything, um, I think Cousins was just kind of discussing the... He was discussing ball movement in practice and how no one was over-dribbling. And immediately, everyone kind of jumped to the idea that, oh, he's bashing Isaiah Thomas. But really, if you look at the Kings, there were a lot of guys over-dribbling last season. So it's just a general commentary that, hey... 
we're not over dribbling. We're passing the ball. That's good to see. Like, I think it was just one of those things where we kind of saw the story that may or may not have actually been there. Yeah, and I think I mean Ramon Sessions. Ramon Sessions is going to be. I mean, he's a he's a score first point guard. He's a guy that's going to. I mean, he's very capable of being that ten six and six guy off the bench, a guy that can create offense. He can score. He rebounds. He he just fills up the box score. But Darren Collison is a guy that just you know prides himself off of moving the ball and shooting at a high rate and just being kind of a team oriented player. Ray McCallum's not a high volume dribble scorer. Ben McLemore is a guy that his biggest weakness at the draft was can he even dribble the basketball. So. A lot of these guys, hopefully if Mike Malone can instill a offense that allows the team to just move the ball and have good flow and good fluidity, and I mean, getting the ball to DeMarcus Cousins, who no question is the best young star in the Pacific Division, I don't think that that's even a question. Uh, I'm not just saying that because you're on the podcast, I'll say that when we're talking to uh, the Golden State of Mind and when they have Seth Curry in conversations, because I think DeMarcus Cousins has a chance to be the best big man in the NBA and he's already in that conversation there's just other things that he's got to comb out of his game and things that he's got to fine-tune young guy super talented so you're expecting to see a bloodbath I think there'll be competitive games I think it's fun watching Sacramento and Phoenix regardless of what the talent looks like and when the Suns were down and when the Kings are now down right now it's you know the league is what it is sometimes all right so final question for you Sacramento Kings preview final record playoff situation where do you see them finishing this season final record wise uh, overall for the 2014-2015 season oh i expect them to end up with about 30 to 32 wins um i've been guessing somewhere in that range for the past five years now so eventually i'm <laughs> going to be right and uh i'm going to look really smart at that point but i'm just hoping we correct that 30 win mark i mean it, it's i don't think this team is ready to make that big leap and now if they remain aggressive and make a big trade midseason, that could obviously change things. Uh, we we really don't know what they have in store. You know, there's all these rumors that the Kings are in pretty much every conversation that's going on with front offices. So they're definitely active. They're looking to improve the team. I don't think we're going to have quite the big trade that we saw with like the Rudy Gay acquisition. But it wouldn't surprise me at all to see the Kings be active in trades. So. You never know. And, I mean, hey, last year a lot of us thought that the Suns were going to be one of the worst teams in the league. And, oh, they barely missed the playoffs and would have been, what, like the three seed if they had been in the East. So, (laughs) I mean, surprises happen. Sometimes things can gel out of nowhere, so you never really know. I think the Kings would like to be in contention, you know, maybe just on the outside looking in of the playoffs. I have my sights set a little lower just so I'm not as heartbroken, but uh, hopefully – a little bit of improvement this year. And so just so you know, I'm going to continue throwing hindsight is 2020 terrible things at you via Twitter. Um, just because <laughs> I'm, I'm a draft guy. I've been covering the draft since 2009 uh, as my primary thing and then covering the Suns as, as my secondary thing because I'm out here. And just, I mean, when you look back at the drafts and I look back at them from the lens of who they could have actually drafted. And I know the butterfly effect is one flap of the wing, but I mean, it's, they're, they're cleaning up their mistakes though, which is nice. I mean, drafting Stauskas wasn't a bad move. McLemore and Ray McCallum was a a pretty quality draft overall. We'll see what it looks like in two to three years so we can judge it. But, you know, kind of cleaning up the Jimmer mess, kind of cleaning up the Thomas Robinson stuff. Get, I mean, bringing in Derek Williams, who, I mean, why not? He's a former number two overall pick. He's a talented guy. See what he can do. He's an Arizona guy, so I watched him a lot out here. I think they're, they're kind of cleaning up a lot of those mistakes. I hope Mike Malone ends up making it because he's a guy that I really think is one of the better guys in the league. Smart, good basketball mind. 
And yeah, I mean, I'm rooting for, I'm rooting for the Kings from afar more than any other team in the Pacific Division because I just kind of like what they're finally doing. They're they're bringing things back around after having their little their flirtation with being at the bottom of the NBA. So I'm I'm thinking 30 plus wins is a, is a nice mark. You know, two more wins than last year. So hopefully, like you said before, it's just addition by subtraction. That's got to be the Kings mantra this season, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's all we got. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. Well, how how can people find you? Obviously, SacktownRoyalty.com. Make sure you get on there and read Greg, like I said, Tom Ziller, the rest of the crew out there with Sacktown Royalty. But how can folks find you on social media and catch you out and check you out? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at uh, G-W-I-S-S, and I'm the guy who looks like Vladi Divac. There you go. Like I said, I'm going to be sorely disappointed when I see you and you're not that that Eastern European Vladi Divac look, man. Well, I appreciate... <laughs> well, the Halloween's coming up, right? So there's got to be Vladi Divac costumes out there somewhere. but Or, or Pedro Stoyakovich at the, at the least. So, no, I appreciate you coming on. We'll probably talk to you throughout the season with uh, jumping behind enemy lines like we did here today. And, uh, yeah, good luck to you guys this season. And, uh, I, I like I said, look to speak to you soon. All right, thanks. Take care. All right, so that is the Sacramento Kings preview. And as I mentioned before, we have a full Clippers preview that somehow turned from a 15-minute conversation into an hour-long diatribe about the Clippers. So it just is what it is. They're prima donnas now. They were they were the uh, the bottom of the WNBA for so long that they're just so prima donna-ish. they got to have their own podcast. But we're going to flip gears over to the Warriors. Now, what's funny with the Warriors, we're going to talk to Nate Parham, who is a friend of the podcast, talking not only Warriors, but WNBA over the the past couple of years. The funny thing with the Warriors is that the Clippers may be the team that's going to be predicted and penciled in to, you know, maybe knock off the San Antonio Spurs for an NBA championship, but the Warriors might be that sexy pick out West to be the underdog team that might be able to come out of the West and be a championship contender. Nate, how do you do that in terms of being a, a Golden State Warriors fan, especially thinking back 10 years ago when you guys were just the, the scrappy underdogs against the Dallas Mavericks winning as an eight seed? Now you're potentially, the fa- not the favorites, but the underdog uh, favorites to win the Western Conference. Yeah, it's, it's actually happening pretty fast. So you have to remember at the beginning in Mark Jackson's first year, the Warriors were tending to get Harrison Barnes. I mean, so, uh, you know, to go from that to suddenly sitting here being talked about in contention it's pretty remarkable uh, turn of events that I think is a credit to um, the decision makers at the top the front office ownership I think they've done a good job um, turning a franchise around really actually really pretty quickly um, you know I think I think this year the big question I, I think is obviously um, a lot about Steve Kerr and how he's able to negotiate an 82-game season. I don't mean that to be bad at all, but a new coach, every team is going to go through slumps. I think that's especially true with a new coach who's just trying to figure things out. So, you know, I, I think that's kind of the big question for me. But in terms of talent, like on paper, i put this team up against almost any. Um, Steph Curry is, is just obviously a superstar. Clay Thompson is, is coming into his own, and there's just so much going for this team with, this year if they stay healthy with some of the new additions they made. I'm excited. So I said earlier that I would say this, even in the Golden State Warriors portion of the preview, 
that I feel DeMarcus Cousins might be the most talented overall young player in the Pacific Division. Let's let's talk Steph Curry. Let's. This is the point guard division. We talked about this last year when we did the preview yep. between Goran Dragic and yet Steph Curry of Chris Paul, yet Isaiah Thomas at the time, Gravis Vasquez and Steve Nash. So you had yet a, a crazy da- a talent pool of point guards. Now it's it's you know the Phoenix Suns have their triple headed monster. You still have Steph Curry. You still have uh, Chris Paul overall as the the point guards in this conference. Is Steph Curry the best young player in this conference, or is he out of that conversation? He's just one of the best players in the conference. Yeah, you know, I, I, I probably put Steph beyond that conversation. Um, I, I think he's, he's just one of the best players in the league right now, and part of it really is he just has a skill that's so unique that no one else can really match, and it's hard to make it really difficult to defend not only him but his whole team, and it's that ability to pull up and shoot off the dribble from three. Um it's just unmatched in the league right now. So, you know, until I think that uniqueness factor just kind of puts him over the top in any discussion I'd have. Um, obviously, there are better players. LeBron is a very good basketball player. Kevin Durant's a very good basketball player. But you know, I think Steph, Steph is at the top of that or near the top, at or near the top of the league right now for me. So, you know, I'm biased, but best in the division, I'm going to go ahead and say Steph Curry. A lot of the conversation about the Warriors offseason is Steve Kerr and that they didn't get Kevin Love. So they, they get Steve Kerr as the head coach. They didn't get Kevin Love in a trade. Let's talk about what actually happened, though, and I think that gets kind of swept under the rug a little bit because Sean Livingston, let's go ahead and say this. I, I, I mean this genuinely, and we'll see if you disagree or agree. Sean Livingston was the best player on the Brooklyn Nets last year, a team that made the playoffs and, and had some scrap in them in terms of being a conference, at least finals contending type team, maybe not a, a team that was going to win the conference, but a conference uh, type player that might be able to get up there to the conference championship. Also, Brandon Rush, Leandro Barbosa of Phoenix Suns fame. How do you grade the offseason? What do you think of the offseason moves overall? That's a good question. You know, I, I haven't yet graded the offseason yet in my head even, just because I think you're right. The whole thing is overshadowed by the Kevin Love ordeal. And so it feels like anything is coming up short after that. Um, I, I really like the Sean Levinson deal as well. I think it gives the team. Um, he he brings a lot of diversity in terms of his versatility, in terms of his ability to defend uh, the wing and handle the ball. And you got a guy like Steph Curry. When you have guys like Clay Thompson, who need someone to set him up, usually in the past, um, it just gives the team another wrinkle that I think they haven't had since Jared Jack left. And I actually like the fact that Livingston. He's just a little bit bigger and longer, which means he's even more versatile defensively than Jared Jack could ever hope to be. So I really like that pickup. Um, I also I also like the Barbosa pickup just because you know it gives us because again it gives the team another wrinkle, extra ball handler. But so if I had to grade, if I can put the Kevin Love thing out of my head for once, um, I'm going to go B plus. I think they made they, they, I think they made the right moves. Um, they couldn't get Love. But they they went and filled some other needs I thought they had. Uh, There's some people concerned about post depth, obviously, with the injury problems to Bogut and Fessus Azili is still kind of, you know, he's back, he's able to play, but he's obviously um, still working his way into shape after being out for seven months. So um, I think some people are very concerned about that. But I think when I look at the roster right now, I'm pretty happy with what they've done, and I think they have a, a shot to at least move up. You know, my thing is always, can they move forward in any way? And if you think about last year, um, 
they were out in the first round, you know, can they get to the second round and possibly challenge to get to the conference finals? If they can do that, I'm, I'm pretty happy. So I'm pretty easy to please at this point. I mean, we've had so many years of being terrible that uh, I think right now I'm just kind of trying to enjoy everything that they're giving us. So I've uh, I've kind of just annoyed myself as the unpopular opinion alert guy. So I'm gonna I'm gonna throw one at you in terms of an outsider looking at the Golden State Warriors. Steph Curry, let's let's just say this out there. He's their best player. But at the end of the day, when you consider throwing Sean Livingston, Clay Thompson, and Andrew or sorry, Andre Iguodala, I was gonna call him Andrew Iguodala because Andrew Bogut. You consider throwing those guys out there at the same time on the perimeter defensively, that kind of adds another wrinkle to this team where, yeah, sure, Clay and Steph can shoot the heck out of the ball, but when you can throw those three guys out there defensively, and obviously offensively they're not really slacking, they're not as good of a shooting unit without Steph and Curry there, but when you look at that group there, does that, is that a dynamic that you think makes this team probably the reason why they might be able to go over the hump there? Steph Curry can actually sit out of games for a couple of minutes and let those three go out there and run the show. Yeah, you know, I think that the thing is they they have you know and there's there's Draymond Green as well. I mean, if if you have we have Curry out, the, the key is that they're going to have options. I don't, obviously, they're not going to be quite as dynamic, but they're going to be. If you know, I think part of the way I think about the bench is can you at least hold steady? <laughs> can you at least not you know give up, you know, flood the boat a little bit? So. Um, if they can, if, the, if that backup team can at least hold even and not not increase the deficit or lose the lead, you know I think that's the kind of thing you want from them. I think they have the defensive ability to do that, and they have some offensive options as well. Um, it, I think that kind of embarrassment of riches, riches thing could actually be a problem. Um, I think especially for a new coach, I think just figuring out that rotation is going to be one of the biggest challenges this year. Um, just because you you do have to fix, it's going to be a new offense for everybody. Uh, and they're also trying to figure out how to how to work under a new coach, how he works under adversity, and trying to work with some new pieces. It's going to take time. Uh, the potential is there. I, it's just hard to really call what that best unit is going to look like uh, if Curry's out. So, um, is it worrisome? No, but I think it's it's an interesting question to be asked. I think an interesting question to ask the entire roster of the Golden State Warriors, and of course they'll answer the right PR answers, but does this team know uh, Steve Kerr from the NBA Finals moments that he has as a player or as the announcer that he became on TNT <laughs> just because it's such a young roster? And that, that's the point yeah. I'm making, is it's such a young group that Andre Godala and Andrew Bogan and some of those guys might know him as the, the former player, but a lot of these guys know him as the former announcer. What has been, from your perspective, watching the Golden State Warriors in Summer League, in the preseason, training camp, etc., what has been the 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 flow of Steve Kerr becoming the head coach in the in the stead of Mark Jackson leaving. So you know, I think the, <laughs> I think the biggest thing is just you look at the assistants he hired. You know, he, he went out and hired guys with experience. And I think he went out and hired guys who they could really sit down and collaboratively lead his team. Um, Alvin Gentry is an experienced coach. Uh, he knows what he's doing. I, I think those are and you know the NBA GMs voted him the top assistant in the league or whatever. Um, for whatever that's worth, but you know, I, I think I think that's one of those things where, right off the bat, I think Kerr Kerr is someone who's going to try to bring. He's 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 a, he's, a, he's probably a better communicator in terms of his ability to communicate um, 
and this is the issue with the Warriors, obviously, communicate the front office's vision to the players. I think he's willing to do that, and he's putting those things into play. And he's just—I think he's doing a better, better job of saying, "How can we maximize this roster rather than it's going to be my way or the highway?" And I'm not going to listen to feedback. Um, I think his handling of Andre Iguodala and Harrison Barnes probably defines that. That's a really risky move for a new coach to come in and uh, try to start Harrison Barnes over Andre Iguodala. And, you know, the thing that's coming out, you know, all the reports are kind of saying, you know, it's a matter of him really communicating and trying to get these guys on, on the same page under one vision and understanding that it's not about the individual but the team. That's hard. It's hard, it's hard to do that, and it will be harder for him if Harrison Barnes does not perform any better than he did in the preseason. Um, so I kind of like that Kerr, there's a, there's a clear vision there. There's a vision beyond ISO. Um, there's a, a willingness to bring people together, and there's a willingness to take risks, and we'll see how it all holds together over 82 games. I mean, uh, what can you say? He's a first-year coach. These things can go. Jason Kidd started terribly. Got it seems the playoffs, and then that whole thing blew apart. <laughs> I'm not saying Kerr's going to follow the same thing, but um, you never know with a first-year coach. It's hard with a first-ever coach. It's, it's hard to say. So, so watch how I do this here. So, Mark Jackson comes over to the Golden State Warriors, who are at least in terms of their recent history, a team that offensively that that's what defines them. They're offensively great. They do things like that. And then Mark Jackson comes in, tries to install some defense, has success year over year, eventually gets ousted. Steve Kerr comes in. Um, similar similar thing happened out here in Phoenix um, with the women's basketball organization there where Russ yeah, Pennell came sure. in and instilled all the defense, and then Sandy Brondello took them to a championship. Is right. Steve Kerr the Sandy Brondello to Mark Jackson's Russ Pennell? Uh, can, I, can I make that comparison, are you asking? Yeah, I mean, basically, I mean, is that is that realistic? Is that something where the, the fans can look at that and go, you know, Mark Jackson instilled a lot of the philosophies on the other end, and Steve Kerr is right. going to come in and, and be able to kind of bond it all yeah, well, together? You know, I think I think part of it is they, they, and this is kind of underrated a little bit, but, you know, Jackson, I think Jackson did put, a, put an emphasis on that. But they also had some of the best defensive players in, in, in franchise history. I mean, to have a team, or recent franchise history, obviously. I mean, we're talking Bogut, Iguodala. Those are good defenders, and Thompson is developing as a defender. He's probably a little bit overrated by some Warriors fans, but, I mean, he's still a, very, he's still a, a good defender. He can hold his own there. And so I think you, when we had those kind of players out there, when Bogut was healthy, um, and then, of course, Draymond Green as well, we have those kind of players out there to, to mix and match. I think it helps defensively, and it's not like it's not like Kerr is going to come in and they're just going to forget how to play defense. I mean, Draymond Green is a smart enough player; he could coach himself. I mean, I, I don't think the guy needs to be told to play defense. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I do see the similarity there. Um, I don't see a Brittany Griner, but that's okay. I mean, I, I think there's there's. So um, Harrison Barnes is not your Brittany Griner. No, 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 no. Nemanja Nadovic, no, no. Don't even suggest that. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think that's you know I know there are some people who are afraid that Kerr is going to come in and lose from that defensive edge, but um, it's not like Mark Jackson was known for his defense as a player either. I mean, it, it was just he did a good job of bringing guys together. And, and making defense an emphasis, and I, I don't think this group of players is going to forget that. Um, there's there's a reasonable explanation for why that team is good was as good defensively as they were, and it's the, you look at the personnel, you see it. Adding Livingston will help. Um, 
adding a healthy, even adding a healthy offensive Sazili is going to help. So, uh, yeah, I could definitely see Kerr taking to the next level and, and getting some credit on Mark Jackson's back um, if they go further. Absolutely. And, and that's where I think that this Warriors team has the most intrigue is that year over year, people are going to forget they got better with Mark Jackson. They weren't a bad team with Mark Jackson. Yeah, I mean, they weren't a bad team. Yeah, they didn't win a championship, but they were not a bad team with Mark Jackson. Yeah. They got better year over year, and they added some pieces that if Mark Jackson had them, who knows, maybe they do the same exact thing they would with Steve Kerr, but Steve Kerr maybe brings some more imagination to the offense, allows Steph Curry right. to be Steph Curry, and now you have the defensive Band-Aid type players in Iguodala and Bogut and Green and Livingston and Thompson, as you mentioned, who's developing. You have the offensive talents, of course, that are on the roster as well. It's a nice blend, and we'll see how mm-hmm. he puts it all together. He's got a lot of depth. He's got a lot of tools to play with. So when you look at this Warriors team, so the, the Clippers are, we can probably both agree, they're the team that is the favorite to win the division. The Warriors and the Suns, the Warriors are a notch above the Suns. I'll, I'll say that as a, as a bright side of the Sun, Phoenix Suns writer. <laughs> they're, they're a notch above them. They're just a step ahead of them at the moment right now. How do you see the season series <laughs> matching up, though, with the new Phoenix Suns roster and this new Golden State Warriors oh, roster? Question. They made some changes. Good question. Um, ooh, between the Suns and the Warriors. You know, I, you know, I, I still think the, the Warriors are just have a little bit I mean a little bit I, so I actually think they have a lot more firepower that's my personal opinion obviously uh, and, and I think I think what's gonna what's, what will make the difference is uh, is whether one whether they're healthy when they're, whether the Warriors are fully healthy when they play the Suns um, like for Livingston's out right now we'll see how this develops um, but also I think how this experiment with uh, with how Kerm manages the the Barnes and Iguodala thing is going to matter, um, but I, I just still think there's so many options. Uh, you know, could the Suns win one or two at home? Yeah, but I, I see the Warriors taking that series, and <laughs> at the risk of starting a fight, I, I see the Warriors taking the city series pretty easily in their games at home. I, I just I just think they're they're. I, I see the the firepower. I don't see how Phoenix is going to match up with the, the Warriors' firepower offensively. I don't think anybody. I don't think many teams are, to be honest with you. Um, if they're clicking and if they're running this offense the way it's supposed to be run, I think they're going to be really uh, a handful for everybody. Well, I think the tough thing that would like just speaking on these two teams. I think the tough thing is going to be that the perimeter could probably go mano a mano, point for point, assist for assist. The, the, the perimeter can attack each other very equally in a lot of ways. I mean, there's some aspects where the Warriors are better, some aspects where the Suns are better, shooting, athleticism being the obvious. It's the front court, right? I mean, the, the front yeah. court of the Warriors is a little more developed, a little more seasoned. Those yeah. guys are ready for the battles. They've had the battles with Bogut and Lee in the playoffs and things of that right. nature. So that's where they're a little bit separated. So, I, yeah, I'm interested to see how that ends up balancing each other out. I think it's going to be fun. I think at the end of the day, whether it's 2-2, two to 3-1, two, to 1-3, one, one right. whoever ends I mean, up winning the series, it's going to be a lot of fun games. Yeah, it'll be fun. And, and Dragic did relatively well against the Warriors last year. So, I mean, I... Um, Certainly, I'm, I'm not. I'm not dismissing the Suns. I think they're they're a strong team. I think uh, the Warriors. You're right. The, the experience in the front court is going to be help. And I just. I think the Warriors have the, the real thing that I, that kind of really excites me about this team is they they have defenders one through five now, um, who are gonna, they're going to have a few more defensive options to work with this year than they even did last year. And I think that'll that'll hopefully help 
if there's any matchup problems with the perimeter defensively, which, you know, it killed them last year. Um, I could hurt them. Uh, they didn't really have a good answer. So we'll see what happens this year. Look, hey, at the end of the day, when the Spurs are expected to win, they lose. So the Spurs are the team that's a favorite now. They're the team that everyone expects yeah. to win. So it's kind of ironic that when they're the team that's built up and talked about, they end up losing. The Clippers, you know, they are what they are. They've gotten better in some ways. They've gotten, you know, worse in other ways. They, they're they're yeah. a team that they are what they are. But they have Chris Paul. They have Blake Griffin. They have Doc Rivers. They have a team that's, you know, potentially a championship contender. I don't think that it's outside the realm of possibility with Kevin Durant missing a few months and what the war or the the Thunder didn't do this offseason. The Warriors are probably the third best team. It looks like you're talking to a guy that writes for Bright Side of the Sun that looks yeah. through things from a non-biased lens, though. So the Phoenix Suns are not necessarily, you know, world beaters and the champions in my eyes. They're a team that has their weaknesses, they have their strengths, and I can see the Warriors as being probably the third best team in the the Western Conference, and the Suns yeah, are still one of those teams yeah. battling for a spot. And, and I think you're right. I, I mean, you're talking about Durant being out. I mean, I, I think it is going to come down to health. So the question is, when everything's come, when everything's when everybody's healthy and it's in a playoff situation, home court advantage is going to matter um, how those teams stack up. And if the Warriors can sneak ahead, that'll help them if they were to go, if they were to have to face the Thunder, say, in the playoffs or something like that late in the playoffs. But um, I. I <laughs> I don't want to be. Too, I don't want to be too overconfident right now. I always try to, to temper no, no, no. expectations. See, right now, see I'm gonna I'm gonna cut you off, Nate, because last year your pessimism was so just it was it was nice to see, but your pessimism about the team because everyone was projecting them to win 50 games and they were gonna yeah. do this and do that, and you were like, oh no, let's let's take a step back. We had a great year yeah. last year, but let's take a step back. And you had a little bit of more of a guarded optimism about the team. Yeah. So no, be be confident, be optimistic about this team because they have a lot of good things going for them. <laughs> they do have a lot of good. So I mean. This Year, okay, but last year I said I said in your podcast I said forty eight wins, I think is what I said, and that's about um, you know it was about right. But I, I think this year, this year I'm looking this year this is a sixty win team. I definitely see this as a sixty win team um, vision wise. It's just I think the matchups when I look at OKC, what OKC has they have the dynamic one of the best one on one players in the league. Um, and a, and a guy like Russell Westbrook who can just take over a game when he wants. It can also shoot people out, also shoot team out of the game. But you know that, that's a that's a little bit that's something that's hard to contend with on a, on a in a series basis. So would I put the Warriors third? Here's the question. I mean, I, I like the I don't like the Clippers. I was going to say I like the Clippers. They're talented. I don't like them. Uh, I don't think it's a given that the Clippers will finish ahead of the Warriors. I think the Warriors. I think the Warriors can take them. You got to look at last year. That that series went seven with Bogut out um, and the Warriors added and I like what the, I like the, where the, I like where the Warriors added pieces so um, I think it's going to be a dog fight for the second for the second season conference and I think the Warriors are in that mix um, you know you never know when uh, like last year Portland came up and sort of stirred things up and surprised everyone but uh, I think the Warriors are certainly in the mix for that second seed yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Very, yeah. That's very optimistic for me. <laughs> yeah, well, so. especially yeah, fo- folks, go back and listen to. Uh, I'll put in the. I'll try and put in the post the link to the the podcast from last year yeah. where. 
Yeah, I think the the Warriors are predicted to win like fifty plus games, and like you said, you're you're around. Four, don't ask me to remember a year ago. I don't remember yesterday. So you're at you know you probably predicted them to win in the high forties. You're very very guarded though on the optimism about the team, and they ended up over exceeding your expectations uh, by a touch. And they had a fantastic first round series, which it's funny because it's like, oh, they got knocked out in the first round. Yeah, well, they took a team to seven games and right. they did exactly. it depleted and they did they did a lot of great things as a young team. It's they were another young Warriors team that did more than what was expected of them, basically. So right. yeah, it it'll be interesting. We'll see how it goes. I think the Suns, like I said, it I I see the Suns as a team that's still battling Memphis and Dallas and Houston and Portland for those final couple of seeds in the playoffs where right. the Warriors are you're right. I, it's the Clippers are the favorites, but it's not outside of their own possibility for them to finish one game ahead of the Los Angeles Clippers right. and win the Pacific Division. Exactly. Yeah, and that's not a knock on the Clippers, even though I love to knock the Clippers. Um, I think the Warriors just—if this thing comes together, like the the high moments of Curry's offense uh, and the the rotation possibilities. When you look at all of that together, and we really haven't seen it with Livingston, obviously. We look at the whole thing together this team is a really potent team and it's, it's going to come down to can they can they bring it together in a season and can they come gel as a team uh, to make this unit really work and that's you know those are the questions for just about every team in the league yeah, um, and the, with a new coach the Pacific Division above all things we share we, we do a lot of things we're very nice to each other you know you have Alvin Gentry and the we have Eric Bledsoe from the Clippers yeah. and Steve Nash yeah. over the Lakers and Isaiah Thomas here from the Kings yeah. we're, we're, we're very much a free trade environment and whenever we have free agents we usually stay home we, we do a good job right. with that of staying within each other and helping each other out as best we can yeah yes. and you know we gave the Kings Mike Malone there you go. Um, yeah, and you and you enjoy Alvin Gentry because he is. is yeah. yeah, it as, works out. As it much as out. he's as much as he's maligned out here in Phoenix, he took a team <laughs> to the Western Conference Finals. It was probably the least talented team in the the two thousands for the Phoenix Suns, and took yeah. him to the Western Conference Finals. Now he's your assistant coach and our former right. general manager of that exact same team as your head coach. So, right. <laughs> so enjoy right. enjoy this Phoenix Suns uh, this Phoenix Suns Golden State hybrid uh, coaching staff that you have out there, but. Yeah. <laughs> um, Golden State of Mind is the website. You guys do a great job covering the Warriors. Look, at the end of the day, SB Nation is a family, and the NBA is just a fun environment. So, you know, Brightsiders get out there and check out the great coverage from, you know, a tremendous young team with Golden State, and then vice versa with you guys out there watching the Phoenix Suns. But how can folks individually read you, Nate, and check you out on social media? Sure, yeah. Uh, you can get me on Twitter at uh, NateP underscore SBN. And uh, you can check out Golden State of Mind on Twitter at Unstoppable Baby. And uh, yeah, that's that. Follow us. On, follow the site on Twitter. We're gonna get the Facebook going too uh, this year. So Facebook as well. Also, swishappeal.com and following along with... Uh, for, for women's basketball. Yeah, it has, has nothing to do with the NBA Pacific Division preview. It's to do with the NBA. <laughs> right now, it's going to be women's college for, for about the next eight months. But at some point, it will be WNBA, WNBA, WNBA draft stuff. So exactly. Well. exactly. So I just wanted to throw that out there. So me and Nate will be collaborating, I'm sure, down the road on some WNBA yeah, stuff and, and checking out some things. So uh, Phoenix Mercury defending champs. We're going to go ahead and close this out with the Los Angeles Lakers here in just a moment. But again, Nate, thanks for jumping on. We appreciate appreciate you always being a friend of the podcast yeah thanks man thanks for having me on yeah i'll be sure to have you on later in the season so again that's nate parham of golden state of mind all right thanks man now to close things off because the first game of the season just so happens to be against this team that is kind of like a rival and there's chance out there of like beat la from here to boston um that end up kind of ruminating out through arenas 
We're going to talk about the Los Angeles Lakers. We got Drew Garrison of Silver Screen and Roll. We're going to talk Lakers. We're going to talk Suns. We're going to talk a lot of things because there's a lot of connections, a lot of ties, a lot of Phoenix and LA things that just kind of intermingle over the past few years. So first and foremost, Drew, uh, as I ask everybody else, first week of the NBA season is coming on right now. You guys are up first. You get to play the Rockets in the first day of the season and then get us in the back-to-back. So we appreciate that. Thank you for playing us in a back-to-back out here at home for our first game of the season, man. Anything for you guys. (laughs) So I got to ask, how excited are you just in general? The season is starting. You guys are on on opening night. You guys are busy right away with those back-to-backs. How excited are you for the season to get going again? Uh, You know, I'm I'm actually really excited. Like, I know the Lakers aren't going to be a good team this year. You know, I'll I'll be the first to admit that. But I'm excited to see Kobe Bryant back on the court. I'm excited to see Julius Randle develop over the season. You know, I think Jeremy Lin is going to be the best point guard on, on the Lakers from, like, the last three seasons or so. So there's, you know, when you look at kind of individual pieces of the season, I'm excited for it to get underway and kind of get over this preseason and, and training camp and kind of the, the blase stuff and actually get to the meat of, you know, the NBA year. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm actually pretty pumped. Yeah, see, so if I'm in L.A., this this is exactly the the ranking of how excited I am about the season. It's Kobe Bryant's year of redemption because it's not going to be Toronto eighty two games every single game, but it's going to be in some way, shape, or form that version of Kobe Bryant in every single game. There's going to be some version of Kobe going out there to prove a point in every single game of the season. And then you have Julius Randle, and then you have getting the sixth pick or worse in the NBA draft, because as we all know by now, fifth pick or better, it ends up being out here in Phoenix. So if you had to rank like the top three storylines, the most things that you're excited for for the, the Lakers season there, and go ahead and talk about them a little bit, what are your most exciting storylines for the Los Angeles Lakers this year? Well, you know, like I alluded to and you alluded to, I think the biggest thing is going to be you know watching Kobe Bryant play. Uh, he definitely has a lot to prove. You know, the Lakers gave him a gigantic extension before he played a game from his Achilles, and then six games into it, he busts his knee. So uh, seeing him bounce back and actually seeing him play, you know, so long as he stays healthy, that's, that's going to be the biggest thing. And, you know, nobody expects him to go out there and play 35 minutes and drop 25 a game. But there's going to be flashes. You can see it in the preseason. He's still got the moves. He may not have the list. And, you know, actually it's funny, you know, that you could have the Suns that against the Suns the fourth quarter. It was it was vintage Kobe out there, and, and seeing that even in, in glimpses and stretches is, is going to be a lot of fun because he still can can do kind of basically incredible things. You know, it, he's just so talented, and his muscle memory and his form and you know his technique is, is pretty much flawless. So um, you know, the shot follower is fall. You know, maybe he'll put up you know twenty shots and only end up with like twenty one points. But there's going to be nights where he's it's five or six shots in a row that are just tough baseline fadeaways or from the elbow that's just going to be a, a complete joy to watch. So I'm excited to have him back on the court. Uh, clearly the number one storyline this year. Uh, the second one is definitely Julius Randle's development. Uh, you know, he's a 19-year-old kid out of Kentucky. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of expectations as far as him being one of the most NBA-ready guys in the draft. You know, maybe arguably the most NBA-ready besides maybe Jabari Parker out of that, that lottery uh, bunch. Uh, so, you know, he's representing the future of the Lakers' power forward position. And, you know, <laughs> minutes provided, and, and, and depending on how Scott handles the rotation with, you know, Carlos Boozer being there and you know, being the veteran presence that Scott may prefer for a bit, uh, it's still going to be something watching Randall, even if he comes off the bench. Uh, you know, he could do a lot of things on the court. Uh, arguably, you know, the, the most fun thing watching him do is 
uh, taking the ball up the court in transition and finishing on the other end. He's kind of like a bull in a china shop. Uh, he's not the most graceful player in the NBA or as a rookie, but uh, he's just uh, he's just very powerful. He's very driven, and uh, I think he's still kind of learning what it means to be in the NBA. But when he gets confident on the court, and, and we've seen glimpses of it, he just he really just gets into the zone, and it's just everything's clicking, and the kid's just really talented. So watching a young, talented player in all the Lakers roster is going to be kind of a new and fun experience. Um, and then I guess third is it's kind of hard to say, uh, but I'm going to go off the wall a little bit. Uh, I'm going to enjoy watching Swaggy P all year. He's just, you know, like the Lakers season was really terrible last year. Uh, I mean, really terrible. I mean, franchise worst terrible. But, you know, Swaggy P out on the court smiling, hitting threes, celebrating, just being Swaggy P. It's just a lot of fun. There's just something about it that is kind of infectious. Like, he's just fun to watch. And it's kind of funny because you would think, you know, Nick Young has kind of had this reputation of being a chucker. And don't get me wrong, he helped chuck. But he was really effective last year. He was pretty good as a spot-up shooter, and he was moving off screens. He, he did a lot of good things as far as his efficiency goes, and he had a career year in L.A. Uh, and the fact that he's a kind of a – he's not kind of – he's a L.A. guy, and it's just a really good story, and he brings a lot of uh, fun to the team on and off the court. So uh, I'm all in for Swaggy P. I'm glad they got him on a pretty cost-effective deal of like four years, 21, I believe, 21 million. So I think that uh, I'll enjoy another year with Nick Young, uh, as long as he uh, doesn't regress too much without Mike D'Antoni there pumping up those wing numbers. Yeah, I'm curious. Like with Swaggy P, it's one of those things where there's a lot of players, not just him, by the way, of players in the NBA where you root for them when you know your team is going to be bad because you appreciate those things. But if you if you were the Los Angeles Lakers of 2010, 2009, 2008, those teams that were like realistically wanting to win championships and trying to get a three-peat, Swaggy P is one of those guys who would probably make you pull hair out of your head when he gets on the court and he does all those things. But yeah, I mean, not a bad team. He's a guy that's like, why not? I mean, just go out there and just do Swaggy P things, make us, you know, entertain us basically. Go out there and be entertainment because we're not necessarily trying to win a championship. Um, you mentioned Julius Randle. So he's, I mean, he's the highest draft pick you guys have had. Andrew Bynum was a number 10 pick at one point, but I mean, going all the way back to the 80s with Elgin Baylor, you know, being that kind of a draft pick, he was the highest draft pick you guys have had since him. When you look at him and you look at the preseason, what have you seen from him that makes you excited? And what are some things that make you go, this is going to be a little while? I think it's the fact that he can do a little bit of everything that's the most exciting. Uh, he's not really your classic post-up player. He's more of a guy who's going to operate from the elbow, operate from three-point line, or get you in transition. He works best with space to show off his ball handling. And I think for a 19-year-old power forward, his ball handling is really advanced. And if he continues to refine it, that could be kind of the focal point of how he attacks a, uh, a defender. Um, very, very good stuff on that end. Uh, in the post, he's, he's a bit undersized. He's still kind of learning. He's pretty patient. He's got some moves, particularly his move, um, that he's really effective with. Uh, and he's not afraid to go glass. He, uh, he'll bang down low as far as trying to get to the rim. Uh, and those are, all, those are all good things. Um, the the downside of Randall so far has kind of been his, his mid-range jumper is um, inconsistent, I guess is the word I would use right now. Uh, when it's dropping, it looks great. It's a big part of his arsenal. When it's not dropping, it's just kind of like, man, this kid's got you know a lot of a lot of work to do in this jumper. You know, it it looks flat sometimes, where it just hits the front of the rim and it just clanks off and it doesn't look good. But when he's got the full motion going, when he's jab stepping his opponent, 
He's seen those step backs that he's kind of shown he could do. Uh, he, he looks really fluid out there. So there's there's a lot of ups and downs. I think the other problem with Randall is going to be his conditioning. He's still, you know, Aaron Scott was harping on him all, all preseason, all training camp, about playing longer and harder. And some of it was kind of, I would say, unfair, but a lot of it was, was accurate. He, he didn't look like he was in great conditioning. Um, and that's a problem for, for a kid that's that young that to not be flying up and down the court or being able to play, you know, uh, a longer stretch uh, at a high uh, capacity. So I think his conditioning is kind of a problem. Uh, his main range jumpers uh, a work in progress. Um, but overall, he's, he's kind of got the package as far as what you would look for in a power forward. Um, you could see glimpses of, you know, I don't, I don't, I guess I don't, I don't like talking hyperbole, but if I had to compare him to a player, a lot of people say Zach Randolph. I actually see a lot more of Blake Griffin in his game as far as being able to use his footwork and his ball handling to, to get, take advantage of a defender. Um, I'm not saying he's going to be ever as good as Blake Griffin, who I think is one of the best players in the NBA right now, but he's kind of got that type of makeup in my opinion. Uh, so I'm, I'm very excited about Randall. I, I'm different. It's very different for LA to have a player with, you know, that's a blue chip, I guess you would say, prospect. It's been, it's been a while. You know, even Bynum was a project player where Randall's coming in ready to play and he was, he's got the pedigree going to Kentucky. So I think uh, LA fans are going to really enjoy watching him develop uh, as long as he can get out on the court depending on how Scott plays his rotation. Yeah, I, I try not to get accused of hyperbole when I'm covering the NBA draft. So, like, when I talk to general managers and scouts and they said, oh, man, Julius Randall's the closest thing we've seen since... Zach Randolph, he's got some Al Jefferson in his game, and it's like, okay, well, that's great, but he's also got some tremendous athleticism, got a lot of face-up ability to his game. Those are two things that Al Jefferson and Zach Randolph do, absolutely do not have. They're not they're not guys that are going to face up and take you off the bounce and spin you and dunk on you and things of that nature. They're, they're also not undersized. So there's some intangibles that he has in common with those guys, but also, like you said, I, I like that you bring up the Blake Griffin because he is an athletic guy. He's a guy that can take the ball off the glass, dribble it up to half court, make a pass uh-huh. to somebody, or, or even go all the way and finish. I mean, he's a guy that's really athletic. Uh, again, a blue chipper, someone that you guys haven't had since probably Kobe Bryant was drafted by the team, Eddie Jones, etc. going back, James Worthy. I misspoke and said Elgin Baylor earlier, but it was James Worthy of 1982 that was the number one overall right. pick. So, yeah, it's it's interesting that you guys got him. So, when you switch gears over to the other point guard, so or the other the other rookie, you mentioned Jeremy Lim's going to be their best point guard in X amount of years, you know, 2 to 3 years, you know, since the last time they had a point guard that was effective for this system. You also have Jordan Clarkson. You have the rookie from the second round, a guy that most people thought was probably a first-round draft pick. I included. I thought he was a first-round draft pick when I was putting together my stuff with my draft website. He's a guy that's very talented, good size, good athlete, does a lot of different things, but had you know some ups and downs in his season with Missouri because of personal family situations. But what have you had a chance to see out of him or hear out of him from training camp to the preseason, the summer league, of course, with him coming in? I guess he's listed as the backup point guard for Tuesday with opening night. Yep. Um, with Jordan Clarkson, I think the expectations are, are pretty low. I think people look at him as a... Um, like a cherry on top of the draft because Randall is a big prize, but Mitch kind of sneaking in and grabbing a guy like Clarkson, who, as you mentioned, many you know early in the, the college season felt that he was kind of a, a late first round type of prospect, um, kind of a steal um, as long as he can, obviously. Um, it's hard to say what you've seen out of him because he missed a, a large portion of preseason because of a cap strain, but you bring up kind of the things that the Lakers have been lacking in their backcourt, which is athleticism. Uh, he's very explosive. He can get up and, and 
you know, jamming on the rim. Um, I think I had more uh, a feel for his game watching him at Summer League when I was in Vegas. Um, and the biggest thing for him um, when I spoke with him was that he felt that the speed of the game and the pace of the game was so much faster than it was in the college game, and he was adjusting. And that's where he was having problems was kind of playing at the NBA speed. I mean, that's a, that's a big problem for a rookie play card is trying to get used to uh, a different level of play. Uh, so him you know, being thrust into those big minutes at backup point guard early on, you know, tomorrow he's, he's the only other point guard on the roster. Um, you know, Ronnie Price is down. He matched down with the season. So uh, I don't know if thrusting him into that type of role this early in his career is going to be helpful or hurtful. It might look bad on him, um, and he might feel some pressure from the fan base or even maybe the coaching staff, but um, he's talented. Uh, he can do a lot of different things. He can work to take a role. He's very quick. I feel like the way he moves around the court, especially when he has the ball in his hands or if he's stepping back, he's like a dart. He's like a dart. That's how I always personify his movement. He looks like a, he moves like a dart. And, uh, you know, I, I don't expect a lot out of him, but if he can be productive with the bench and develop uh, into a nice role player that'd be a be a nice pickup for the Lakers to kind of help their uh, their young bench depth which has been a problem yeah and I like how you mentioned him as a cherry on top because he's a guy that I mean if he didn't have the second half of the season that he had with Missouri due to his personal family issues that he was having probably would have been a first round pick probably wouldn't be a Los Angeles Laker today but you know it worked out the Lakers purchased a pick that ended up being Jordan Clarkson they have another young talent to kind of play with you know another young guy to to kind of build with Julius Randle and hopefully you know kind of build with this young roster and the Lakers aren't used to doing that they they sure they draft Kobe but they sign guys they sign guys like Pau Gasol they sign Shaquille O'Neal they bring teams together and they put them together through that kind of a format and you know now they got to start building through the draft it's gonna be interesting because from your perspective, when you look at what this team is doing, they they sign Byron Scott as a head coach, they draft Julius Randle, they draft Jordan Clarkson. Sure, they sign Jeremy Lin, and they have the offseason moves that they have. Is this a team that you feel is going to start having to build through the draft, or is this another premier loca- location, a team that can bring in free agents uh, during the offseason that might be able to make an impact immediately, or is this a team that's just going to have to build through the draft? Um. That's tough to say. I think it's, it's tough to say right now. The NBA is kind of in a weird spot right now because there's, you know, a lot of powerhouse teams. You look at, obviously, the Spurs, but you look at the Thunder, you look at Portland, um, look at the Suns. Um, there's another team that was really off the top of my head. I was like, oh, they, these guys built through the draft. But uh, besides the point, uh, a lot of teams are having to build through the draft. Pacers, that was one. Pacers built through the draft. Um, I think the Lakers are going to have the capabilities to do a little bit of both. They're going to have these young guys, you know, depending on how they end up this year, if they end up in the top five of the draft, I mean, they, they're going to get another blue chip player. That's huge. Um, but with the new TV deal, I think this is where we're kind of hitting that we don't know what's going to happen next uh, area because the cap is going to open up. When the cap open up, opens up, the Lakers have a big checkbook. Uh, and, and that's kind of where the large market you would say the large market um, advantage is kind of faded because, you know, we have the Lakers can't, can't pay that type of money. They can go over the luxury tax, but, you know, every other team is basically at that point and everybody's competing to sign these guys for, you know, $14, $16 million a year. Um, now that number's obviously going to go up in time, and that means the Lakers are going to have even more money to spend, and they're going to separate themselves probably, again, depending on how, how willing these other teams are going to be willing to put up, you know, $17, $19 million to sign a guy. 
uh, the Lakers will have that capability and they won't be shy about it. So, you know, I guess I'm kind of in the boat where I'm okay with them building through the draft. I, I think that's the great strength of the front office to be able to scout, to be able to stick to a plan, to be able to get the right guys and develop talent. I think that's very important no matter what. Um, on that same token, I'm not counting out the fact that the Lakers are a, a money-making team. They they have revenue. They're not going to be afraid to use it if they have the ability to do so. So I think they're going to be kind of a hybrid ultimately, with uh, depending on how Randall pans out, depending on how this next draft pans out as well. I, I kind of said tongue-in-cheek, but I, I genuinely mean it, that this season might come down to Byron Scott with the team's future in mind, which in a lot of cases that's what the coach's job is. Is I mean, the immediate uh, satisfaction and results are very important, but the the long-term future of the team is also something that's got to be put in play versus Kobe Bryant's ability to go out there and have redemption is going to be one of the more interesting storylines of the Los Angeles Lakers season because Scott is, you know, he's got his long-term contract. He's there to do big picture things and win now, but also win long-term. Whereas Kobe's going to come in and we talked about it before 20, 25 shots a game, go out there and score 20, 21 points a night and do Kobe things. How do you feel that that's going to line up in terms of Kobe versus Byron Scott versus those guys maybe working together? Uh, so I think that's the biggest conflict with this roster and this team and, and Kobe is that Kobe wants to compete. Byron Scott's, well, Byron Scott's brought in as a supposed win now coach, but now he hasn't won now in a long time. Um, and then you look at the roster and you kind of go down and, you know, they brought in Boozer off the amnesty waiver. He's a veteran. He's an older player. He's not. Uh, a feature guy, and he's, you know, Byron, uh, Byron Scott's starting booster over Julius Randle. Um, you look at Jordan Hill, they signed him to $9 million a year. I mean, he might be a trade bait target. He might be, you know, a salary cap kind of contract. But regardless, he's a veteran player who isn't a young guy you develop. Uh, Jeremy Lin, I mean, I guess you could say there's still some room for Jeremy Lin to, I guess, grow as a player if he's in such a starter role throughout, you know, the season. But you know, he's not exactly uh, a young player developing where, like, Randall would be, for example. Um, so I think they're kind of in between right now, and I think they're going to try to compete. You know, they have this roster, and, you know, they're going to war, and, you know, they're going to try their best, and Cole Brown's going to push the team, and they're going to talk about winning, and, you know, old-school Lakers smash off basketball, and, and, you know, the franchise and all that. But, you know, I think it's going to get to the point where it's like, well, we're not winning. It's time to start developing talent. And, um, you know, to me, as a Lakers fan, it's more important to develop for the future and to worry about the long-term outlook versus trying to appease Kobe Bryant because, you know, Kobe knew what he was getting into when he signed that, you know, $40-plus million contract. Um, and at the end of the day, like, I've said it before, I've written it before, you know, it's franchise over everything, and I'm not overly concerned about, you know, trying to play up to make sure Kobe gets his redemption. It'd be nice if he did, but, you know, it's it's not at the cost of the Lakers developing for the future. And uh, quite frankly, there's just no way for this team right now to win uh, anything of you know importance. So I think it's, uh, it'll be interesting to see how Scott in the front office handles those types of expectations versus uh, you know, what realistically is going to be going on with the roster. At the end of the day, what is Steve Nash's legacy? It's kind of silly to say that. But what is Steve Nash's legacy with the Los Angeles Lakers? How do you, as a Los Angeles Lakers coverage guy, look at Steve uh, Nash? Uh, you, you know, I don't want to take anything to Nash. He's obviously one of the greatest point guards to ever do it. Um, he's a legend. He's an obvious Hall of Famer, first ballot. 
Um, but, you know, his, his legacy with L.A. is going to always be tied to, the, you know, maybe arguably the biggest blunder in franchise history. Uh, you know, he's going to be tied with Dwight Howard and he's going to be tied with Dwight Howard leaving. He's going to be tied to Mac D'Antoni. He's going to be tied to Mac D'Antoni not panning out with the team. He's going to be tied to Phil Jackson not being brought in uh, potentially because of Mike D'Antoni. So, um, I, unfortunately for Nash, his, his legacy in L.A. isn't much of a legacy at all. It's more of an asterisk. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's nothing to disrespect Steve Nash, but, you know, realistically, his time in L.A. was just, uh, it was a bust. You know, he broke his leg when he knocked legs with Damian Lillard, and that was it. You know, it was never... There was never a moment where it was like, all right, finally we got to be Nash, you know, orchestrating our offense and doing all this and that. It was just how long is Steve Nash going to be healthy this time? And, you know, he was healthy for two games this preseason, and uh, that was it. So he's not he's not considered um, as leaving much of a positive mark in his time in L.A., which is uh, really unfortunate. Yeah, it, I mean, it definitely is, because if you ask a Dallas fan that or a Dallas writer that with, you know, corrective hindsight – they'll say that he was a guy that did a lot of great things. And obviously out here in Phoenix, it, it sucked that he went to L.A., but at the end of the day, if you if you have appropriate hindsight, you would say that Steve Nash is one of the greatest Phoenix Suns of all time. You know, Ring of Honor kind of a guy, which is our internal Hall of Fame. So it, it's, it's kind of disappointing because I, I wasn't upset that Steve Nash went to L.A. His family was out there. He orchestrated this trade that worked for him. It's obviously going to work out for the Phoenix Suns if the pick ends up transferring. So at the end of the day, the Phoenix Suns did the right thing. They did something that worked out for them, but it just it didn't work out for the Lakers, unfortunately. And I'm one of those guys that I'm an NBA guy, not necessarily just a strictly just a Phoenix guy, and I'm going to homer it all day. So it kind of sucks that it didn't work. It didn't click. There wasn't a full season of 82 games of Nash, Kobe, and Howard, which I didn't think would work to begin with, but there wasn't 82 games of that, which would have been nice. It would have been interesting to see how they worked that out, how they made it work, and things would have looked like with that group so when you look at the los angeles lakers now so there's no steve nash there's no dwight howard it's kobe bryant and company basically how do you feel that this group matches up against the phoenix suns and how that season series is going to look like uh the phoenix suns are going to slice and dice like i mean let's be honest you know you have uh eric Bledsoe, you know going to is that on either of them sitting out as they thomas always done you know i feel like he's always done really well against lakers uh well, I think, you know, the Suns are going to really uh, take advantage of the Lakers' lack of perimeter particularly at, you know, the perimeter uh, with uh, Kobe Bryant or, or with uh, Jeremy Lin, who's, you know, he doesn't have a lot of witness to keep up with those guys. Um, and he kind, of, he kind of saw it in the preseason. Goran Draza kind of just fell in for a few layups. And, uh, they're just too athletic for the Lakers um, as a roster overall. Uh, so, you know, Suns are a better team right now, and you know there's no really question about it. Just, to me, my question is how good are the Suns? Are they going to be one of the teams that extend the playoffs? You know, and that's something I'm interested in watching because you know, I could definitely see them, you know, being as eight eight seed or in that eight seed race, or even possibly push for a seven seed. You know, the West is you know kind of crazy. It's, it's always been crazy, but maybe no more so than it is now. Uh, so you know, the Suns are a few on the rise, and you know when they finally were able to square things out with Eric Bledsoe, it's clear they're ready to go back to it and. You know, improve on what I would say was a pretty successful season. So, uh, you know, hats off. The Suns, you know, they've moved on from uh, a lot of different personnel and as far as the uh, coaching goes from Gentry and D'Antoni to getting rid of Nash and, and all that. They've slowly kind of brought themselves back into the picture. And, you know, they're, they're a good team. And, uh, you know, they'll be, they'll be fun to watch this year. 
Yeah, the funny thing is, is that you're talking to... I don't know. I mean, for Suns fans, you're talking to the wrong guy. But for like just an, an NBA guy, I look at the Suns through a lens of they're going to be a really good team. I think that there's no question they're a top 16 team in the NBA, but will they end up being in the field of 16 at the end of the day? I, I don't necessarily think so because the West is so deep. But yeah, I mean, with the Lakers, it's, you know, I mean, it, the, the NBA is what it is. It's an 82-game marathon and players retire and things happen and the Lakers have been able to be sustainably great for basically their entire franchise history outside of a few years here or there. Uh, Smush Parker uh, anecdote we can throw in yeah. there. But <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's unfortunate that Steve Nash ended up being the other anecdote when it comes to like the, the times that the Lakers haven't been successful. But when you look at the Lakers this year, what what is your overall expectations? Where would you think that their record is going to lie at the end of the day when the season is over? Um, I, you know they won twenty seven games last year, right? And Kobe Bryant's back this year, and I just have a hard time feeling they're going to finish worse than that with Kobe on the team. But I don't know how much better they'll actually finish because I think that uh, Bryant's got a, a big downgrade in the head coach team position. Um, and I think health is already a problem going into the season. So I, I think they end up somewhere between 30 to 33 wins, which isn't much of an improvement. Um, and then at that point, the only question would be, you know, is that record going to be enough for them to swipe back their top five protection pick, or are they going to uh, get bounced down again? Um, you know, because they were sixth overall in this draft, and then Cleveland obviously jumped and pushed them to seventh. Uh, so, you know, it's pretty pretty much in the air you know I think um, if they, they're able to get this pick back I think it's even if they don't have much of a winning season if Randall plays well in the ballot uh, and they get their pick back it's, it's a successful season but if they aren't able to get their pick back it's just a big waste of time and as fans who you know watch the two game season and you know when it's raining you know you expect a rainbow to come out and when there's no rainbow and no pot of gold at the end it's just you know it's just rain and that's uh, you know that's all of fun <laughs> yeah, David Stern's final gift to the NBA is going to be making sure the Lakers keep that top five pick. It wins the lottery, and you guys get, you know, a good talent. I mean, no one's, no one's saying that this draft has, you know, the next generational talent, but it's it's got a lot of good players. So we'll see how that ends up landing. I mean, you're right. The, the Phoenix Suns, are they're going to be a good team. The Lakers are going to struggle. And I think the biggest question with the Lakers is going to be Byron Scott looking at the clock and going, all right, we kind of want to keep our pick, and playing Kobe is probably going to keep us in that 6-10 to 10 range somewhere in the draft. And... You know, is that where you want to be? Probably not. But at the end of the day, you get to keep your draft pick. So if you can get another Julius Randle-esque type talent with a seven or eight pick, you want to do that before you end up giving over the pick to a division rival there, a, you know, a conference rival with the Phoenix Suns. Definitely. No, I totally agree. All right. So Sacktown, I just talked to the guys with Sacramento, so I'm, I'm talking <laughs> about their website. So Silver Screen and Roll. And you guys do a great job over there overall with your guys' content. How can folks read your work and follow you on social networks? Uh, well, uh, I can go right on Destination and also right on SilverScreenRoll.com. And you can catch me on Twitter uh, at Drew Garrison to ours, SDN, all one word. Uh, uh, pretty active on there. I you know, love social media, especially during games. So, uh, yeah, you know, definitely check me out there. And I appreciate you having me on the podcast. And, uh, no, good luck to the season. You know, I'm excited for uh, the year, even if the Lakers are going to be bad. You know, hopefully they're so bad that we get that pick back. 
there, there you go, right? Silver linings, right? Silver screen and roll and silver yeah. linings. So, yeah, we could we could talk about Byron Scott or Kobe Bryant for 30 minutes, but we try to talk about the Lakers as best we can for 30. So thanks for jumping on, Drew. And I'm sure we'll have you on down the road talking Lakers or, or definitely having you guys from silver screen and roll letting us know how things are going out there in L.A. as the season progresses. I definitely look forward to it.